0: Good morning and welcome to the original Loretta Brown show. Uh Aha, I'm Loretta Brown. You are. Uh, Guess what? Yeah. Yep. My parents named me Loretta. Yep. They did.
1: Was there any other choices?
0: Well, I am the the seventh of eight children, which is frightening to say right off the bat, right?
1: (laughs) So what are your other siblings' names?
0: Um, uh, 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 Cheryl. Uh Uh-huh. Alan. Uh Uh-huh. Lee, Mm -hmm. Mary, Mm -hmm. Virginia, Mm -hmm. me, Mm -hmm. Brian, and Wayne. Yeah. I know. Wow. There you go. I know. Um, uh, Apparently, the story goes that (laughs) I was going to be George Jr. or something. And (laughs) I think I heard about that and decided to be a a girl. I don't know. I could have been Georgina, Georgia. But um, yeah. Uh, there's a little story around that, which is funny because it kind of gives away my age a bit. But nah, um, Dad said that he was in the waiting room and and he's like, "Wow, what should we name that this little girl?" And there was an article about Loretta Young. Oh, yeah. So I wasn't named after a relative; I was named after a movie star, well, that's and probably sorry. that's why I'm the way I am. Yeah, I don't know. I think he tapped into. It's something. a good thing there. Yeah. So now, all you listening audience, you know more about me than you ever wanted to know. And uh, probably then some anyway. This is radio to open the heart, heal the soul, and awaken the consciousness. She's a looker, I know, sharp, isn't hot. that great? Yeah, yeah, woohoo! I know, yeah,
1: I'm looking her up right now. I'm, Are doing, I'm doing some digging.
0: <laughs> Loretta Young, mm-hmm. um, I used to watch the Loretta Young Theater when I was little. The only thing I remember is she would come down the stairs and she'd twirl, oh, so she had dresses that twirled, and I remember. Uh, that for a while I wanted to just wear dresses that twirl. Mm -hmm. And for those of you that have little girls, there is somebody out there that sells twirly dresses. I'm sure. It's a free commercial for those people.
1: A little fact-finding here for you. She actually won uh, in 1947 for the film The Farmer's Daughter. She won uh, Best Actress. She's got an Academy Award and received also an Oscar nomination for her role in Come to the Stable in
0: 49. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So the Loretta Young Show, and now it's the Loretta Brown Show. It's close. <laughs> it's oh, kind of weird, I actually. I, I haven't cute. told that story for years, Benny. That's funny. I think it's, it's really, really funny. Well, anyway, um, I am the owner of Reiki Oasis, located right here in the greater Seattle area. We've been around 23, 24 years and offer everything from Reiki to um, past life regression and hypnosis. I do crystal ball healing concerts and all kinds of things to try to, as I say... Open your heart, heal your soul, awaken your consciousness, and, and help you um, really remember who you are and why you're on planet Earth at this time. That's the deal. Uh, I had a wonderful Reiki 1 class this past Saturday. It was great fun. For those of you that want to go on with Reiki, I have a Reiki 2 class Saturday, July 6th. I also have Temple of the Divine Feminine. My monthly class with women will be Saturday, June 22nd. It's usually the third Saturday, but I'm officiating a wedding on the third Saturday, so hoo-hoo. So it's going to be the fourth Saturday. We have great fun. You can schedule everything at schedule.reikioasis.com, and you can always contact me, Loretta Brown, if you've got uh, questions. Uh, I think it's easiest to send an email to reikioasis at gmail.com. It will get to me, and uh, I'll be able to answer your questions regarding any of the classes. The Crystal Bowl Healing Concert will be at Bala Yoga, that's Bala Yoga, in Kirkland, in Kirkland, Sunday, June 23rd at 7.30 p.m. And get tickets through Bala Yoga. We always have a good turnout. And uh, those Crystal Bowls really do amazing things to you. Sound is so important. And it will help clean and clear you. And, of course, I work with the Beings of Light the crystal beings of light and the crystal dragons and they come and we have a good time and and you don't have to believe in it. You just come wear your yoga clothes, lay around on the floor and we'll fix you right up as I say. And whoo-hoo, October, another trip to Egypt with me, October 2nd through the 16th. I'm only taking 12 people. I do have some places left. I'd love to have you come with me. This is truly sacred soul tribe traveling. You can find out more at facebook.com slash Egypt Travels with Loretta and always send an email to ReikiOasis at gmail.com for the costs and the itinerary. And you don't want to miss it. Um, I do there's something divine that always happens and we have amazing experiences. We get into places that we never knew we were gonna be able to do, it just happens. Very quick little check in with astrology, and then I'm going to bring on my guest, and I'm going to use Vedic astrology today from Kerry Field and Ananda Sri Vedic astrology. So are you fired up? Are you feeling like you're at a breaking point? The new moon this week, June 3rd, began an explosive mix of inner awakening and outer volatility. So get ready for some fierce table-turning events as things heat up in the weeks to come, June is busting out all over. I think that's a song, isn't it? Right? Uh, yeah, it could be. Anyway, a month. I'm gonna go with yes. Yes.
1: Because <laughs> you know you're channeling Loretta Young. So. Uh, yeah. I, is it from me, that have to era? Sit taller. June and, is
0: what? Twirl. I don't know. Uh, I think there's a song. June is busting. Maybe out Maybe Mark all over. knows. Maybe it could be. He might. Yeah. Maybe. We could always ask him. Yeah. So this is a month that can ignite breakthroughs in self-empowerment. But tread carefully unless it's time to blow things out of the water because it's got a lot of volatile energy. The new moon cycle starts in the area of the sky called Rohini Nakshatra, a nourishing and fertile star that symbolizes the red eye of Taurus, the bull. That sounds a little bit like maybe you better pay attention. So with the beneficial aspect of Jupiter, this new moon energizes us for growth and self-development. But be careful, since May 17th, the volatile warrior Mars has been in Ardra, the star of storms, stirring up intense weather patterns inwardly and outwardly. So perhaps you've been feeling frustration or anger, And there's also been powerful weather, such as tornadoes and historic flooding. On June 1st, Mercury joined a combative Mars and Rahu, fanning the flames of agitation even more. Travel delays, chaotic airports and traffic, computer and data security issues may occur. And so in this time, you know what? It's really important to slow down. Take it easy. Avoid unnecessary conflict. And remember that people may be more defensive and insecure during these times. So it is good for us to do what we can do to be extra patient and kind to others. On the days leading up to the full moon on June 17th, we're going to be uh, especially energetic and heated. So, like I say, keep things simple. Work inwardly on building your strength, courage, and self-esteem And if an outer conflict needs to be discussed, listen carefully and try to communicate your needs. So with the coming eclipses in July, we will find that we will be triggered personally, politically, globally, nationally. We're going to be triggered for a total deconstruction and liberation from past karma and attachments, particularly in the area where Saturn and Ketu is now transiting your Vedic astrology chart. So it's a time to um, kind of rise up out of the ashes. Let's try to get rid of those old, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> negative thought patterns that apparently get stuck in your throat. Yeah, get out of there. Yeah,
1: get out, get out. Because get out June now. is busting all over. By the way, yes, it is a song. It is a from song. the uh, movie by Rogers and Hammerstein's Carousel ah. in 1958. 1950. So boom, you were right.
0: Boom, there you go. Mm -hmm. All right. And I can't think of a better introduction than bringing my guest on today. My guest is Mark Coleman, and he is the author of From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness, as well as Make Peace with Your Mind and Awake in the Wild. I love that title. He's the founder of the Mindfulness Institute. He has an MA in clinical psychology. And Mark Coleman has guided students on five continents as a corporate consultant, a counselor, a meditation teacher, and a wilderness guide. In his new book, From Suffering to Peace, Mark explores the full breadth of mindfulness and brings close attention to four key areas in life, the body, the mind, the heart, and the world in which we live. Welcome to the show, Mark. It's great to have you.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about you while I was going through that little bit of astrology, going, it's so providential. It's a great day for you to be on the show and talk about what you do. Talk about mindfulness. What is mindfulness?
2: Yeah, so mindfulness simply is clear awareness. It's the ability to know what's happening as it's happening. And um, that sounds very simple, and it is very simple. It's very ordinary, accessible human quality. And as anyone who knows who tries to focus or pay attention or to concentrate or to meditate that, that ability to stay present in the present moment with clarity is easier said than done because we all have busy minds and, um, you know, stresses and uh, habits, mental habits that pull us out of that simple present knowing into either spacing out, checking out, reacting, Um, and so mindfulness is not just a quality of mind that we all have, but it's also a way to train the mind and attention to really see clearly and to know ourselves and to know reality with, with clarity, with depth, with understanding. So it's kind of a, it's a broad range of both qualities and practices and tools to train the mind and heart.
0: You know, um, I was re- reading through your book and thinking about this interview with you, and you know so many people are caught up in, as you say, the stresses of everyday life. You know, like our mind is just a wild horse racing all over the place or whatever the heck it's doing, right? Uh-huh.
2: And Totally. I,
0: I believe that, you know, what I like about your book is that you're not only talking about uh, many of the things that we need to think about in life, like taking care of our body and and what about death and what about our mind but you have some uh, practices some exercises in the book that can really help us with this and i say on a day-to-day level yeah
2: right yeah the 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 book and my teaching in general tends to be very practical and pragmatic and and mindfulness itself you know it's been around for thousands of years it's been tried and tested and developed in, you know, mostly in the Buddhist tradition in Asia, Southeast Asia. And, um, yeah, and you know, and, and of course now the reason I write the book is because mindfulness is exploding. You can find mindfulness from Time Magazine to apps to online courses to being prescribed it by your doctor or go finding it a lunchtime class in your business or... Um, you know with your therapist and so it's um, become incredibly um, uh, uh, accessible uh, which is wonderful from school children's to to elders and people in hospice um, and I think the the one of the reasons it's become so popular is it's be, one it works it's practical it's accessible um, it helps us be present helps us regulate emotion helps us know ourselves um, and the, the, the reason I, I, I wrote the book was not just to explore all that, but also because mindfulness has really exploded in onto, um, you know, the mainstream media and in science and, you know, all kinds of places, um, the, because it's, uh, its popularity has grown so quickly and it's now been sort of commodified and, and packaged as the panacea to all our ills. There's often a danger when that happens that, that the original meaning or the depth uh, or the fullness of this practice is overlooked and so my, um, the attempt with my book is to say, hey what what's, what's the, what, why is this practice being around for thousands of years and what is its potential in terms of really allowing us to find freedom and peace in the midst of our lives um, more than just say pay attention. Or focusing—it's really like how do we understand our mind, our body, our heart? And how do we live in the world with with freedom and clarity? And so that's that's really the the the, the thrust of the book.
0: Yeah, I, I I like what you're saying. I'm I'm thinking, you know, because a lot of listeners, this is morning um, prime time. You know, people are out driving, right? <laughs> we have a, a little issue with road rage here in Seattle. Occasionally, you know, not in my car, but you know, maybe other people's cars, right? And, um how do we how how does the practice of mindfulness help us in a situation like that? What, how can it help us navigate that? i'm I'm really thinking about the emotionality,
2: yeah, yeah. well, definitely. And one of the places that mindfulness has been studied and researched, both in psychology and neuroscience um is with emotional reactivity and uh, re- and emotional regulation. You know we we live in stressful times, and whether it's as you say, traffic, or dealing with work stress, or family parenting stress, or you know, there's many things that push our buttons, trigger us. Um, and um, you know, I live I live in the Bay Area, where we have similar to Seattle, you know, huge traffic, you know, problems, and it's very easy in a day to. Get triggered either by traffic or your spouse or your kids or your financial situation or you know you know politicians and um, uh, without mindfulness without that self-awareness what happens is we you know we, there's a there's a trigger whether it's the traffic or someone saying something rude or mean um, and we quickly flash from zero to a hundred and uh, find ourselves caught up. In an emotional storm, saying things, doing things that we might later regret. And so mindfulness helps, you know, it's one is a training in, in self-awareness, how we be present to our body, how we be present to our emotions, how we find space to hold those triggers. And um, one of the reasons we find ourselves getting reactive is because we're not tracking the, the buildup. You know, so say you're in a conversation and it's starting to get tense or go in a way that you don't want it to go, or the person's saying things that are, you know, frustrating. If we can catch our our, our reactivity or frustration early on, we can know that. Um, you know, if we don't track that, it's going to build, and we might, you know, it might blow as, as as volcanoes can as we can. And you know, and usually end up. Doing things, saying things that we regret, so um, so mindfulness can help with both tracking that, feeling that. In, in meditation, what we do is we train to be present to our experience, to our feelings, to our body, to our thoughts, to our sensations. And the more we, the more we attune to our body, the, which is where our, those emotions, those reactions, anger, fear, anxiety are happening. The more we learn to have capacity to be, to be with them, to feel them. To have space with them, and so um, so this is a training that we can all do. Um, you know, it takes practice like anything, um, but it really is a genuine help to uh, finding a sense of well-being in the midst of triggering experiences. And just, just a simple example: so um, I was uh, having a discussion with my spouse the other day, and um, she was uh, you know saying some things about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, like I'm not pulling my weight around the house, and, you know, <laughs> this and that, and, you know, your typical domestic little, you know, discussion that usually can go, you know, can go south really quickly. And, um, you know, someone gets defensive, someone gets feels blame, someone gets reactive. And rather than, you know, and I, knowing that this is a sort of a, you know, can be a triggering area for us, I just, it's like, okay, I'm just going to listen I'm gonna breathe. I could feel myself getting a little annoyed, a little defensive and like, hey, but what about all these things I do, blah, blah, blah. And I just, you know, let that be quiet and felt the agitation in my body. And then, you know, once after she'd finished speaking, it's like, oh, right, yeah, she's kind of right. That's kind of true. And and, uh, I don't need to get defensive and reactive and I don't need to have a whole drama of an argument. And um, it was just a simple example of how when we're mindful we can track that, and mindfulness gives us the space to hold our emotional reactivity so we don't get so pulled into it.
0: Oh, I, I really like what you just said, and thank you for being so honest and, and really at the living level of life because you went right where I was wanting to go. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, so mindfulness gives us the space to hold that emotionality. Um, that's powerful. I'm thinking about you know my clients who quite often have similar things to what you're saying, but to where they're they're full, you know, like they're they're full of their stuff, they're full of anxiety, they're full of stress. So when they <clears> have this um, go round with their their loved ones, they blow, right? Because they don't have any more space.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you know, mindfulness is really you know, if anything, it gives us a sense of space and um and in that space you know there's a a phrase that's attributed to Viktor Frankl even though he didn't say it like so many famous phrases that get misattributed it says between stimulus and response there's a space like like your partner saying something annoying and you saying something back there's a space in that space lies our power and freedom to choose our response in that response lies our growth and happiness but mostly of course you know, when we get challenged or cut off on the freeway or cut off, cut off in a conversation, we don't feel like we have the space. And so mindfulness does help, you know, mindfulness is really drawing on the space of awareness. Awareness has the space to hold anything. The more that we are sort of residing in that spacious awareness perspective, the more room we have to notice, to feel, and to choose whether we want to act something out or not.
0: and the the training yeah because the training then with mindfulness is in its own right and please you know kind of correct what i'm saying modify it um being be even being able to sit with what we're feeling or thinking right because we run from it right we don't want to do that
2: yeah yeah i was just giving a talk last night and on this on the book and the theme of that talk was you know mindfulness is it's a radical orientation to, to, to life, to experience. Generally, we run, we run after the pleasure, we run away from pain, and we try and control things we don't like and, and get all the things we do like, you know, that's a natural orientation. But, you know, life course is way bigger than us out of, you know, many things are out of control, whether it's our health, our family health, or the the economy, and traffic, and, what people say to us. And so, um, but what mat- what mindfulness is doing is it's, 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 a, it's this radical meeting showing up for this moment, this experience with awareness, with curiosity, with kindness, because without that we can't really, uh, you know, receive the information that's coming in. Right? So I think of mindfulness as a deep listening, a deep attunement to experience. And particularly to the difficult stuff. And there's a lot in the book I talk about working with pain, working with loss and grief and all the various challenges that we can experience in life. Um, And mindfulness is that training, that spacious awareness that we bring to experience that allows a certain accommodation. There's a great line that I quote in the book from one of my teacher's teachers. He says, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. And of course, nobody wants suffering, and of course we try to avoid it, but running from it just perpetuates it and actually makes it worse in the long run. Just like if we ignore an injury or we ignore an emotional wound, or we ignore a problem in our relationship, you know, it generally comes back to bite us, you know, many times worse. And so mindfulness is like, okay, let's let's look at the truth of what's here. Can I be with it to understand it? When I understand it? There's much more, Likelihood of some resolution, some learning, <clears throat> etc. <cetera.
0: clears throat> Let me say that quote back. I, I think you said, "By running away from suffering, we run to it."
2: We run towards it. Yes. We
0: run towards. Yeah, that is so true. Um, it's funny. I was saying that to somebody yesterday. Sort of like, you can you can face this now, or try to run from it. It'll just come back later, and might be bigger right? It <laughs> might right. be in a bigger form. Um, yes. Yeah. You, uh, you said, oh, uh, excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
2: No, 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 please. <clears throat>
0: you were talking a minute ago in, in what you were saying, you mentioned the breath. The Why is the breath important in mindfulness? How is it important? Yeah, well,
2: you know, the breath, I think across traditions, um, the breath is you know, one of those primary doorways to, for meditation. Um, The breath is always with us, hopefully. And um, as a meditation tool, it's a beautiful support because when we attend to the breath, it's always changing. It's moving by itself and it's always in the present. So to the extent that we're connected, attuned to the breath, we are grounded in our body, grounded in our present, which is a great resource for life, right? To be grounded and present. When we attune to the breath, it's the breath is also a barometer for our inner experience, our physical, emotional, psychological experience. When we're stressed, the breath changes. When we're angry, the breath changes. When we love the breath changes. Um, and so so as a meditation tool, it's a beautiful support for training the attention, how to be present, how to be present to changing experience Um, and also we can you know the 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 we can learn a lot from any aspect of our physical experience and so um, for example um, you know we can use the breath not just as a tool for concentration but also for for insight so one of the simple things we can learn when we attend to the breath is it's never the same no two breaths are the same no two cycles are the same. There's it's always moving, changing, flux, which is which is the nature of all experience, and um, so that that in itself can be instructive. And then we all, we can also see how the breath is breathing by itself. Mm-hmm. The breath has a life of its own. The breath, as I as I say in my meditation instructions, the breath breathes itself. And so um, so when we see that, we it allows us to get out of the way, it allows us to to get to to loosen up on our on our on our tendency to control control experience, mm. and um, so in that way it's 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 beautiful and 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 uh, instructive. Um, and then the the other thing, going back to the emotional triggers, when we can attend to the breath, particularly out breath, feel the calming quality of the out breath, the relaxing quality of the out breath. It's tremendously regulating. So I often tell people, you know, in if you don't have time to meditate, you can just breathe five times slowly, deeply. You know, extending the exhale a little. That's tremendously calming and regulating. When you get triggered, when you're in traffic, when you're in an argument, take one, three, five, ten deep breaths. That immediately uh, engages the parasympathetic nervous system, allows the nervous system to downregulate, allows the stress to to mellow, and we have much more capacity then. To um, to then be able to deal with whatever's happening.
0: Um, I uh, uh, yeah. While you were uh-huh. talking and even even talking about the breath, I became more aware of my breathing, and I went right. Oh, I could actually exhale and and just settle down in. And I was also thinking, um, you know, about people who are. Like, if we're angry, we're going to, like, we're getting down in there because we're going to get that breath and we're going to force that out now. And it's like, okay, instead of doing that, what if you just paid attention to your breath, right? Right, yeah.
2: right. Yeah, it and, it's
0: always, it's,
2: and it's always available. That's the, that's the wonderful thing. It's, you know, the, the breath huh. is never far away. Yeah. You know, it, it's, like a, it's like a good friend.
0: It is. It is. Yeah, we have things like... Well, I've lost my breath or whatever the deal it is. It's like, yeah, it is always there. We're going to take a quick station break. This is Loretta Brown. My guest today is Mark Coleman, and he is the author of From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Did you know that Reiki
1: healing can be done at a distance? It's true. So let Reiki Oasis focus powerful energy to help relieve your stress. Grief, sadness, anger, and so much more. Convenient, personalized treatments at a distance can increase lightness of being. During your appointment, find a quiet place to lie down or sit to receive healing energies. If you want help with your disease, visit ReikiOasis.com. Harness life's energy. Visit ReikiOasis.com today.
0: Marie, is that you? Oh, hi Barb, how you doing? Better now. Did you know we had a little health scare with Jeff? Oh no, what happened? Well, he had been short of breath and was really tired a lot of the time. He just thought he was getting old and was out of shape, but it turns out it was heart valve disease. How did you figure it out? He finally went to the doctor, and she was able to listen to his heart and detected the problem. I didn't realize it, but heart valve disease is more common than you'd think. They were able to replace the valve, and he's feeling so much better now. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that.
2: More than 5 million Americans are diagnosed with heart valve disease every year, but most people know nothing about the condition, and it can be deadly if untreated. That's why it's important to listen to your heart and ask your doctor if your symptoms may be due to heart valve disease or if you're at high risk. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatments for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.
1: Multicultural, multidimensional, even. Alternative Talk, eleven fifty. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.
0: Woo hoo! You always do it right, Benny. Thank you. Yep, you get, yep, you. You get the right music you. in there. Anyway, welcome back to the original Loretta Brown show. I am Loretta Brown, the owner of Reiki Oasis right here in Seattle. You can find out more about me at reikioasis.com. And of course, you can find out lots about me at KKNW 1150 AM. These shows are archived. You can download them for free and listen to them over and over. And you can do it my daughter in Hawaii. Hi, Jen. Love you. Aloha. And um, you can just have them playing in the background all the time. You know, so she says so she can hear my voice. Oh, that's so sweet. It's kind of weird, but it's sweet. Anyway, my guest today is Mark Coleman, and we're talking about his new book, From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness. Um, Mark, you know, during the break we were listening or we were talking a little bit, and I want to give the people this little bit of background information about you because I think it's fascinating how people got to where they are. So didn't you used to have like a white mohawk or something and... How did you get from a white from mo- Mohawk to me- mindfulness? Maybe <laughs> right. that's your next book. I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, that would be a good that would be a good title. Um, yeah, so I was um, uh, so I'm from England. I grew up in Northern England, moved to London. Was there the height of the punk scene, which was really fun, wild, and creative. And um, I was an anarchist. I was squatting houses, uh, which was part of a kind of a social movement at the time and um and i actually the the long story is i ended up uh squatting a buddhist housing association uh house and being good buddhist they didn't kick me out they said you know you should check out this meditation center we've got around the corner it might help your mind your crazy mind which wasn't my my mind was a little crazy back then (laughs) and um but i was also suffering i was definitely angry i was I was definitely, I had a lot of self-hatred and self-judgment and I didn't like myself and I was blaming and judging everybody and was generally a pretty unhappy young man. And so I went into this and I was looking, I was definitely searching and so I was like, sure, I'll go check out this meditation center. And, um, And I was immediately drawn to the people there. There was something about their presence and their stillness and their indignity that they were just you know just living with that was very intriguing it was it's something that was very different than i'd ever been exposed to in my life and uh, certainly different than the the squatting anarchist (laughs) uh, movement that i was involved with and um and i just learned the practices of mindfulness and meditation and that was, you know, very transformative for me that this idea you can look at, you can turn attention to your own mind and actually really understand why it is that you're unhappy, why it is that you're stressed, why it is that you're suffering. And so, um, you know, that became really a lifelong journey for me of exploring mindfulness, meditation. I also learned the practice of loving kindness, which was also very helpful for me because I had a lot of self-hatred, self-judgment, and negativity. And, um, you know, it was really important that I learned to also be compassionate with myself rather than judge myself, which ended up becoming the theme for my last book, which was on the inner critic, because that's such a,
0: you know,
2: plague of suffering for so many people.
0: Yes, yes, it is. Um, this practice of loving kindness. And also, you you said something about self-judgment and you say in your book your your book here that self-judgment is a modern epidemic a modern epidemic yeah can you talk a little bit more about that because I do find that I I find that straight across the board with my clientele and even with my own self you know that inner critic is is hard on us
2: yes yes yeah, well, I do think it's an, an epidemic. I do um, you know, work with thousands of people all over the world every year. And um, one of the things I see is the, the, I think the place that we create some of the m- most painful mental and psychological anguish is the way that we talk to ourselves, the way that we judge ourselves, compare ourselves negatively, put ourselves down. Um, set ourselves impossibly high standards, um, and generally unnecessarily hard on ourselves. And um, so so my, my work over the years has been helping, you know, mindfulness is, is an amazing tool in that, you know, it helps illuminate our mind, our thoughts, and particularly uh, having discernment and discrimination between what is a helpful, useful thought and what is an inaccurate, distorted, painful thought, and so the thing with judgments, you know, I, and I make I make the point that with with, with awareness we can make the distinction between a uh, you know things like evaluation, discernment, discrimination, assessment, right? We 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 need these faculties for for you know navigating life, um, and they're different than the judging mind the judging mind when we judge ourselves we ba- the judgment is basically saying you know you didn't do so well at work today that was mean thing you did in the conversation you know you your body looks terrible and the implication therefore is you're a bad person you're unlovable you messed up you're hopeless you're a loser you're worthless and so the implication is it's um is it really is implying something about our worth and our value and that's what's so damaging about the critic is it it's not just an idle come like oh you know your car's dirty it needs a wash it's like oh no your car's dirty it's always dirty you're a mess you can't even clean your car you know you're never going to get your life together it's sort of it doesn't say that verbally necessarily but it's sort of implied in the judgment and so that's why it's important with mindfulness we can become present to our thoughts, including our judging thoughts, and find again that, that space to unhook, to, to step back, to uh, see actually how often they are inaccurate, they're distorted, they're, and they're, they're, they're really only just a point of view. And when we see that the thoughts are just a point of view, it's like, okay, so I can tell my critic, thank you for your opinion, <laughs> Thank you for your point of view that you think I'm unlovable or stupid or you know I'm never going to get my life together and I'm going to go back to my task. Thank you very much. Um, so um, so that's how it can bring you know very kind of immediate sense of space and freedom from that very tyrannical habit. But the, the first thing the, the first thing that we need is to identify it and and see, you know, see its limited, biased perspective.
0: It's limited bias perspective, yeah. You mentioned something about unconscious bias in your book. Is that related to what you're saying here? Um I definitely
2: it's definitely related. I mean the the we have a negativity bias and the judgment the judging mind is definitely you know, totally full of negativity bias, you know, in that all it sees is what's wrong, what's problematic. Um, doesn't see us, see the whole picture, doesn't give us a balanced perspective of who we are with all our strengths and challenges. Um, so, um, the, the the but looking at unconscious bias is, I would say, I mean, they're, they're both the critic critical mind, which comes at an early age, um, you know, from from uh, the voices and the messages we hear as, as children, unconscious bias is really the biases that, that are usually also being somewhat implanted in early age. That the biases we have around race, around privilege, around um, you know any kind of conditioning that conditioned us to see people in a certain way, right? So if you grew up in a racist family, you're conditioned, your bias. Is to look at people from different ethnicity as different, as mm-hmm. having you know have, having you know inferior qualities to some degree. Um, if you grew up in a homophobic household, then you're likely to look at anybody in the LGBTQI community as as somehow aberrant or wrong, or and so um, you know of course unconscious bias is hard to unpack, but just by its very nature that it's, um, you know, it's unconscious. But with awareness, we can learn to bring attention to ways that we might be uh, unconsciously acting out bias or unconsciously looking at people in particular ways that are not accurate, that are not um, helpful, that are distorted. Um, so, you know, mindfulness, you know, is really about unpacking all of ourselves, and all of our habits and tendencies, and particularly uprooting those which are painful and problematic. And definitely our bias um, is one of those. Mm.
0: Yeah, I, I look at that as the filter that I look at the world through. And um, I, I think this realization that perhaps our, as you say, our perhaps our unconscious bias is uh could I say erroneous or not the best lens to look through I think it's a it's a big re- revelation for a lot of people it's like oh everybody doesn't think the way I do or just because those people are think differently than me does not mean that they are wrong or bad right right yeah. right
2: yeah it, it, it's honoring difference honoring distinction and and, and noticing the kind of Bias that we have, based on our, you know, we, we tend to think our, our our perception is accurate and objective, but it's really, you know, we're just conditioned, like everybody else is, to see through a certain lens. You know, there's a phrase I use in the book: uh, "Don't side with yourself," yes. um, and that that phrase is is seeing. Oh, yes, yeah, we all have a perspective, a bias, and um, can we step outside of that limited view? And see, you know, see other possi- other possibilities, you know. And I, I think our political, you know, uh, gridlock is is happening because we're, st- we're entrenched in our own perspectives and biases and positions, and we can't get out of our own way, our own limited viewpoint. And so we have gridlock. We have, you know, you know, unending conflict, and um, that's just not so helpful.
0: Well, and I'm also thinking about what you said earlier about um, emotions, right? Like if we, um, you know, if if that person over there or those people over there are doing something and I'm instantly getting all riled up about it, that if I can't even be with how I'm feeling uh, without exploding, how can I go on to the next part of it, which is like you say, can I, can I even listen to them? Can I be more? Tolerant can I show up in a different way? Yeah. Right. So does does um mindfulness then help us become more kind? Would that be a way of saying it? Or perhaps um awakening more compassion?
2: Yeah, I mean I certainly the research shows that mindfulness helps develop empathy. Um, it helps us make much more ethical choices and um in my own experience um you know as we become more mindful uh might more self-aware then we you know we, we're basically learning to understand the human experience and when we understand our humanness our human experience then by by naturally um, we become more empathic and caring towards others because we see you know, being human is not easy. You know, no matter how privileged or affluent or fortunate your circumstances are, you know, life is hard. You know, living, you know, living with a heart that's vulnerable, with a body that gets sick and ages and and, and you know gets injured, having a mind that's sort of not quite in our control, um, living in a you know political economic system that's often you know causing a lot of harm and um, so, um, so, as we become more mindful of our humanness, and I, and I think you know the spiritual path um, is as much about descending into our humanness, as it is about ascension, and it's about meeting our humanness and vulnerability fully with kindness and care. and and as we meet as we feel that that vulnerability, that that rawness of being human, we can't it, it it we can't help but f- grow warmth and tenderness and kindness and love because we know that it's hard for us. and so we would naturally want to bring that same kind of care to others, you know, because we know what it's like to be in this in this human experience. So um, yeah, so I'd say definitely it helps grow the heart of kindness and and compassion, and particularly compassion because we, you know, mindfulness is very much attuned to what is and often what is is painful you know just being human and living a life with the body and mind as I said is painful and so the the, the appropriate response to pain is compassion and um, mindfulness definitely allows that to be much more accessible
0: you know um, a lot of people say the word compassion and what what is your definition of compassion what is compassion and and how do we show it?
2: Yeah, so compassion is the heart's... Resp- it's, a, it's a caring response of the heart to pain. So it's the ability to meet suffering in oneself or another or the world to, um, and, and that natural movement of the heart to wish to care and respond. But it's also the ability to stay balanced enough to be able to respond. You know, sometimes we feel this sort of empathic contagion where we get swept up and overwhelmed by someone's pain. That's not compassion. That's just getting overwhelmed <laughs> by someone else's suffering.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but compassion is really you know, the ability to, to hang out there in the midst of somebody's uh, you know challenging circumstances, to feel it with them, compassion to feel with, and to feel that movement, to want to help, to want to do something that will alleviate uh, suffering. So, um, you know, different levels, obviously, but that's um, that, that's how I think of compassion.
0: I, I think that's a, a vitally important piece of, of um, uh, description, or or you know, to understand that being overwhelmed with the suffering um, may not actually be compassion. It's just overwhelmed, right? And you can't really help if you're overwhelmed or serve, right? Step forward into it. Yeah, right.
2: right. And that's where that's where mindfulness and um, mindfulness and compassion go well together. Mindfulness helps us stay grounded and present and balanced and resourced, like like using the breath, et cetera. Um, and um, and so it supports our ability to to be present to someone. To stay grounded while we're present to them, and at the same time to allow that movement of care and kindness to be there. So, um, yeah, so very important that those two come together. And and my my the way I frame, you know, I think the sign of a mature practice, a spiritual practice, is we have we we integrate both awareness and kindness. So we so we move through the world with a kind attention, a loving presence, compassionate awareness, um, and so a caring attitude. And so we, we integrate these two very important qualities.
0: I, I like what you said. A lot of people that, that come to see me that I'm, I associate with, you know, do meditation. But I find, and, and maybe this sounds like I'm being judgmental, I apologize to people if it does, but I sometimes observe people going, Wow, emotionally and dramatically, you're all over the place. Is your meditation helping you, right? Right. So mindfulness, if I'm understanding you correctly, like, what does a mindfulness meditation practice look like? Do you just sit with yourself, or is that too broad of a question?
2: Yeah. Well, there are many, many kinds of uh, mindfulness practices, and I, you know, with, with each chapter in the book, there's a mindfulness meditation. So I have about 35 meditations in that and so there are a huge variety of practices you know like we talked about earlier mindfulness of breath is one very foundational quality mindfulness of body you know sensing and being with all your physical sensations either in general or sweeping attention up and down through the body Um, similarly you can there are many mindful movement practices so um, you know mindful walking mindful meandering you know um and um but then there's more that there's so there's generally mindfulness meditation falls into two camps one where there's more of a focus like you're focusing on the breath or the body or there's more an open awareness where you're just present to the flow of experience sounds sensations feelings thoughts space light um etc and so you can practice in 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 two ways um so that more focused orientation or the more general awareness of your moment to moment changing experience and then you know from that simple awareness we're also cultivating uh understanding we're cultivating insight we're cultivating a curiosity with experience so there's an intimacy with our attention but also noticing um the 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 various insights that arise from that experience
0: Mm mm-hmm and I'm thinking these are big words Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about dissatisfaction the idea of impermanence non-attachment and and I realize those those subjects are probably workshops but um, (laughs) can you talk to us a little bit about that and how mindfulness can help us deal with those things the impermanence of things
2: yeah so um, you know just as I mentioned those meditations that um, you know, mindfulness of breath, or the body, or sounds, or the whole of our experience. Um, the as we do that, one of the things that we can attend to, you know, say with our breath, we can just pay attention to the breath as an as a nice object to to cultivate attention and focus, and or we can notice its changing nature. We can notice that everything is transient. We as we pay attention to the general the general the generality of our experience, we see how nothing stays around for more than two moments. You know, it's, you know, in one moment it's a breath, and then the thought, and the sensation, and feeling, perception, sound, and so the more that we attend to experience, the more we can look at its characteristic and one of its the main characteristics of life is that it's constantly changing, constantly moving constantly uh, in flux. And when we can attend to the change, when we can really, you know, we all know intellectually, of course, that things change, but we don't really live like that because we get upset when things do change. And we, whether our partner changes or our, you know, our car gets a scratch or we lose something, it's like, oh, damn, like it shouldn't happen. It's like, well, no, actually that life is like that. It, that, that, that is how it is. Um, so when we can live with that awareness of change in a very visceral way, um you know, we, we, we learn to, you know we learn to hold on less, We learn to seek after things that are by nature unsatisfying because we know they're going to change. And so, um, you know, when we we live with that visceral, you know, lived experience of impermanence, of transience, then we, we, we just relate to life with much more wisdom, with dignity, with grace, with less reactivity. Um, and so it's a beautiful support for living well in this world because, you know, nobody is immune to change, to aging. And, you know, it also helps us, um, meet the inevitability of death because that's the, 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 the end, the net result of this changing process.
0: For sure. We have about, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute left. Can you tell my listeners, uh, where to find you and could, you know, I just want to say you have this great organization, Awake in the Wild, where you integrate meditation and nature, and people need to check that out. But tell us where can we find you, and um, yeah,
2: like that. Yeah. So <laughs> my main website is um, markcolman.org M-a-r-k-c-o-l-e-m-a-n.org. And I have on there my retreats and programs, books, my teacher trainings. I run mindfulness and nature teacher trainings. So any information, schedule. Otherwise, you can find me through markcolman.org.
0: I love it. And if you go to his website, there are some free meditations there. They're great and really connect with him. So this is Loretta Brown. My guest today, Mark Coleman. We talked about his new book, From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness. And I hope you will be mindful this week. Have a great, great week. Mark, thank you so much. Blessings. Thank you. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.